Military veterans who've been in combat are used to the extreme highs and lows that come with the territory, but a group of veterans who spent a few days at the Kentucky Derby experienced a different kind of emotional swing. Plus, Marine Corporal Tom Canoost heard he'd be nothing more than a vegetable after he was shot in the head. He recovered to spend a lifetime in racing. It's all part of our annual Veterans Day edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hit-bombing finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can get us as well on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com or your podcatcher app. And of course, in the Listen tab at ESPN.com. And we want to make sure that you vote for us in the Fan Choice Awards at America's Best Racing. It's happening right now. And yes, Best Racing Podcast is one of the categories. So you know what to do, ITG Army. If you like this show, vote for us in the Fan Choice Awards at AmericasBestRacing.net. You may have heard about this story at the Kentucky Derby involving a group of Purple Heart recipients from all of the branches of the military. They were invited by a corporate sponsor, Sentient Jet, that was working to create awareness for Homes for Our Troops, a nonprofit that builds specially adapted houses for disabled post-9-11 veterans. The idea was for the six invited veterans at the Derby to meet Omaha Beach. Of course, Omaha Beach was one of the main sites of the D-Day invasion in June of 1944. But that would-be meeting didn't quite go as planned. We'll let the gentleman in the group pick up the story from there, as we are so honored to welcome here to In the Gate Staff Sergeant Matt Wheeler and Corporal Travis Eccles of the United States Marine Corps. Thank you so much for being here. Let's start with this, and I hate to start with a downer, but tell us what happened to you in the course of battle. Let's start with Corporal Eccles. I joined the Marine Corps in 2007, and I deployed to Iraq in uh, 2008 and 2009. And uh, January of 2009, uh, I was wounded in Iraq. I uh, took gunshot wounds to both of my lower legs. And over the course of uh, recovering from that, over 20 or 30 surgeries, um, I actually uh, had my, my right leg amputated below the knee. And uh, my left leg is, is still kind of messed up, too. So, um, so that, that's me. And how are you feeling? Uh, you know, I'm great. You know, that's it's. You know, my my injury was, um, you know, just over ten years ago now, and I've I've recovered very well. You know, I, I lead a you know fairly normal life and uh, get around and do a lot of stuff. So, um, I'm, you know, I I can't complain too much. Sergeant Wheeler, what happened to you? Uh, let's see, 2011. You know, just doing a a normal patrol. <laughs> Walked across a you know a dry wadi little. Um, ravine and came to the other side, turned around to help my corpsman out and uh, stepped on an IED and uh, lost the leg below the knee on the right side. And how do you feel? Oh, fantastic. It was a very active life, work full time, go to school, have kids, uh, go to the gym. You know, I feel wonderful. Well, for obvious reasons, when your group was brought to Churchill Downs in May, it certainly made sense to meet Omaha Beach. So tell us how that unfolded. So it was great. We got into the back and, uh, you know, we were meeting everybody. And, of course, you know, meeting 
Omaha Beach was was a really big deal. You know, it was one of the big reasons why we were there. You know, just just seeing a a horse of that caliber in person was amazing. So uh, it was it was really great. You know that that day, the first the day before the races, we you know was when we all we went out there and met several of the horses. And uh, yeah, Omaha Beach was a really beautiful, really calm horse. Really liked uh, being around people. It seemed like, and uh, it was just a just a really exciting experience to to get to meet like Matt said, a horse that, that that's on that level that you know most people will never see that close up. So it was really neat. And then, how did you find out that he wouldn't be running? I was actually we had we had uh, been out. We had just gotten into uh, Louisville, and we just got to our hotels, and we were I think we were going to go to dinner with some of the sentient jet people, and we were waiting on that. And I actually saw it on the news; they had just announced it, um, the evening news. And I I think I spread the word. I think I was the one who told everyone that hey hey he's not going to be racing because his throat issue or whatever he was having going on. So we were all really disappointed, but you know, it, it didn't, uh, didn't uh, mess up the weekend or anything for us. But there was more to that barn visit, right? Uh, Sergeant Wheeler, tell us about that. Oh yeah, we sure did. We met uh country house, you know, which obviously was, was the big winner there for, um, for the Kentucky Derby. It was really awesome. That was a big win for us to be able to meet that horse and, and the trainers and riders. And then, of course, we met lots and lots of um, different horses while we were back there, even some that were, you know, not in that particular uh, race. What was it like seeing how the sport looked and felt in the barn and on the backstretch? Very, very different than what you would think it is. Having been to different sporting events and kind of seeing how things are, you know, behind the scenes, you're like, man, this is this is kind of, of wild, you know, and then you get back there and the horses are, are just treated so well. Uh, you know, I mean they're they're treated like royalty back there and it's 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 just a whole different level of taking care of an athlete uh than what I've seen in other sporting events. Now you were all there because of your association with Homes for Our Troops. So give our listeners a sense, uh, Corporal Eccles, of the need of these specially built homes. Yeah, sure. So, so Homes for Our Troops, their their whole mission is they build a specially adapted home for severely uh, injured troops from the the post nine eleven theater, and it's a kind of a standard house they built. It's twenty six hundred and fifty square feet. And uh, they're, they're all completely 100% accessible. There's no steps anywhere in the house, so you can get a wheelchair around anywhere, big wide doorways and, uh, you know, other accessible features. And uh, for those of us that have to that have to deal with, you know, those particular disabilities, whereas, you know, some of us use uh, wheelchairs uh, around the house or um, even, even just walking with prosthetics, is it's hard to do if you're, say, you know, walking over, say, a carpeted surface or some uneven surface. So it, it really makes not only the house a lot more comfortable to live in, it, it's, it makes it way safer for for us that, you know, we have to deal with that. Um, you know, living in, in non-accessible housing, you know, we have to worry about falling. You know, we have to worry about showers that don't really meet our needs, stuff like that. Um, so it really gives you uh, a sense of, of comfort and safety and security that, that you don't typically see in, in a normal, non-adapted living situation. 
We're talking here on this special Veterans Day edition of In the Gate with Staff Sergeant Matt Wheeler and Corporal Travis Eccles, both of the U.S. Marine Corps. So Derby Day finally arrives, and you're allowed to make that famous walkover with Country House, who at this point is just a near afterthought. So, Sergeant Wheeler, what did that walkover feel like? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, regardless of how the horse was favored by, you know, everybody else, it was, the experience itself was really awesome to just be able to be with the horse and and to walk with the horse and just just to see, like, everything that goes into it, you know, the pageantry of it all and the professionalism as well. It was, I mean, it was a really great feeling. And like I said, it didn't really matter if it was with Omaha Beach or Country House or whoever. Just being there in general was amazing. Yeah, I've told the story many times of walking over on Kentucky Oaks Day several years ago as part of an all-access documentary we were doing. And the production assistant who was with me, who came in rather skeptical of the whole thing, looked at me and exclaimed, Oh my God, I need to own a horse. So I imagine it must have been similar. So the corporate sponsor then gave each veteran in the group a complimentary $150 betting voucher. And you guys did what with that? <laughs> I, I, put, uh, I, I put all mine on uh, Country House. Yeah, you, you did pretty good on Country House. Uh, we all just bet on <laughs> several different races. But, uh, yeah, obviously we all went uh, – we picked – bet pretty big on country house just because he was you know our horse in sort of a way so but yeah i think we all did we we, we all did okay there so what was that experience like you 65 to one here he comes now obviously he wasn't the first to cross the wire but just kind of take me through that whole surreal experience you know i didn't think he'd win at all i I thought he would he would do good to place (laughs) or even show so I wasn't expecting anything, and then all of a sudden he comes around from behind and and uh, you know comes in second, kind of from the outside, and it was we were all just in shock. Now I don't think any of us thought that that was going to happen. And then of course the whole issue with the uh, you know the disqualification and everything thing where he wound up first, we were all just completely floored. Were you floored when you went to the betting window to cash in? <laughs> yeah, I think I went to the window and they hadn't even decided what was going to happen yet. They were still reviewing it, so I, I, I was expecting to get second place winnings, and uh, turns out after the disqualification, he turned out first. So, uh, you know, did very well, got me more than I expected. Uh, it was just funny to see the uh, the entire lobby near the window after the decision was made, pretty much empty down to just a handful of us that were still standing there. <laughs> People were either really mad or really happy. <laughs> Yeah, most most were mad, but you know, Travis yeah. and a couple others were all were all very delighted that we were still the you know left standing at the window. Nice guys don't always finish last. So Country House entered and <laughs> exited the race. Oh, by the way, wearing a blanket that had a Homes for Our Troops logo on it. Do you know whether that whole episode raised awareness and potentially funds for Homes for Our Troops? We don't really know. They don't really talk to us about from Homes for Our Troops end of it anyways. But I think, if anything else, it just got the people, people would look at that symbol and, and say, like, hey, what is that? And then maybe go look into it to get a little more research in and then, you know, find out a little bit about the program. So if that's the only thing it did, it's, you know, it's better than nothing for us. 
Well, if you want to donate to Homes for Our Troops, you can visit their website at hfothomesforourtroops-usa.org. That's hfot-usa.org. Thank you so much, Sergeant Wheeler, Corporate Eccles, for sharing this. An unforgettable experience, and we wish you all the best going forward. Oh, thank you so much. It was uh, an honor to be here today with you guys. He was nearly left for dead in Vietnam, but returned to spend a lifetime in thoroughbred racing. When we come back, Corporal Tom Canoose joins us as this very special Veterans Day edition of In the Gate continues. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. Our next guest didn't shy away in the late 1960s when the Vietnam conflict loomed over all draft-eligible young people. Tom Canoost volunteered to go, so he joined the Marines. Canoost was shot in the head in Vietnam and called a vegetable by an on-site medic. Yeah, Tom Canoost was so useless that he later became the racing secretary at Del Mar and Santa Anita racetracks. Now, he's a jockey's agent, and he handles the books for Martin Garcia and up-and-coming rider Abel Cedillo, whom we featured on this show not long ago. And at this time of year, when we honor those who have served their country so selflessly, we are especially pleased to welcome U.S. Marine Corporal veteran Tom Canoost here to Win the Gate. You started out as a high school football player. Tell us about how you got from there to the Marines. Well, actually, I graduated from Arcadia High and played football there. Then I played two years at Pasadena City College. And actually, our second year, we were the number one junior college in the country. So it was during the draft and the war was going on in Vietnam. And I wanted, if I was going to go in the service, I wanted to go in the Marine Corps. So instead of waiting to be drafted, I just when I went ahead and joined. After football season was over and after the, the, the semester was over, I joined the Marine Corps, and that was 1967. And then I was in the infantry, and I was with the 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines, and went over to Vietnam in 1967. And take us through what happened to you in Vietnam. I was the 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines, and one day we were on patrol, and I'd only been over there less than a month, and it was like the seventh day that we were out in the in the bush and usually you're only out two or three days and we had been in like four or five firefights and this one particular time myself and another marine in our squad were told to go look at a, a road and see if there was anything up the road while the rest of the squad went ahead and when we were up on the road we heard that our squad had come under fire so we both ran down there and he took cover with the other one Marine took cover with the rest of the Marines and I kept going. And then I was in the, it was like an ambush and I was in the firefight. And then when, during the firefight, I got shot in the head and then I was paralyzed on my right side and I was evacuated from there, came back to the States and I was in the hospital about six, seven months paralyzed in my right side. And then my right side eventually came back. Then I started to be able to walk again and I had to learn to do a lot of things over again. But the recovery took about a year and a half. And once I recovered stuff, I started working on the backside of the racetrack. And I worked as a hot walker. And then I was a groom for a trainer named Reggie Cornell. And that's how I started on the racetrack. 
Well, hold on. I'm not ready to talk about the racetrack yet. I read <laughs> that uh, you never even lost consciousness after being shot in the head. How does that happen? Well, it was like like a sledgehammer hitting me in the head, and everything went black, but I was still conscious. And then I heard a ringing, and then I thought to myself, that's how you die. Everything goes black, and then all of a sudden it just you stops and you're dead. So I started concentrating, and I thought if I could go ahead and see light, then I'd be okay. And then while I was doing that, I heard a voice say, when you go back, things will be okay. And just after that, then I saw some light, and then once I saw the light, then I knew everything was going to be okay. And then we were pinned down for a while, and then another squad went behind the NVA that had ambushed us, and then they killed them, and they had the helicopters come in. And in my squad, there was nine of us, and only two survived. Now, I read that another medic you heard say, He's a vegetable. Is that right? Yeah, when we got back to, they got us to the hospital, and they, we had, there was a lot of other Marines that were shot, and the one, I remember vividly, the one corpsman said to another corpsman, leave him there, he's just a vegetable, we'll get these other guys first. Were you able to digest that at the time? Oh, sure, I remember it vividly. I still remember it. But I just, I, you know, I was just so thankful that I was alive at that time. So I was going to deal with the paralysis later on. Now, you talked about needing a year and a half or so of rehabilitation. I mean, how did you recover mentally and emotionally from the ordeal? Well, for me, I was fortunate enough. I started working on the racetrack. And working with the horses was a great therapy for me. And... That's why we now, I mean, we have the downthestretch.org up in Washington. We have other um, organizations that work with the veterans with horses and that have PTSD. And uh, I know with me, working on the racetrack probably saved my life. Was it coincidental that you got into racing, or was that the plan as a result of PTSD? No, it was. I loved the racetrack, so I always wanted to work on the racetrack. So as soon as I was able to walk again and, and I had recovered enough physically that I could do it, the first thing I did was go to the racetrack and started working on the racetrack. Now, you became a trainer. I mean, how did your lingering physical problems post-paralysis affect your ability to train horses? I mean, it didn't really affect it too much. I mean, I was able to walk all right, and I was able to go ahead and, and have movement. The only thing I had, I I couldn't move my ankle or my, my foot. The paralysis stayed there. My movement never came back there. And with I had, like, no position sense on my right side, and my right side was kind of heavier than my left side just because of the nerve damage. But to train horses, I really it really didn't affect me that, and I was able to work with them, you know, when I was a groom to take care of them and wash them and work on their legs and and clean the stalls, and so I was able to do everything anybody else could do, just maybe not as fast. But working with the horses and doing that, eventually, I was able to go ahead and get a job as an assistant trainer and a barn foreman, and then I trained started training horses and and trained horses for about three years before I went back to school. Corporal. Tom Canoost joins us here on In the Gate. So you left training, as you mentioned, to attend 
to attend the racetrack industry program at the University of Arizona and then racing secretary jobs at Canterbury Downs in Minnesota, followed by Del Mar for 10 years, and then Santa Anita and the dearly departed Fairplex Park. So what was it like transitioning from jobs that were more physical in nature, the military, and then, of course, training horses, to having a desk job? I enjoyed it. I enjoy every aspect of racing. So I had been like a racing, you know, assistant racing secretary and, and a placing judge and assistant, you know, uh, handicapper at Santa Anita when Mr. Kilroy and Lou Elkin were there. So I enjoyed the, the challenge of the, you know, working on the condition book and working with the trainers. And it, it came, that was more like of a challenge, you know, mentally. And I enjoyed it. And sitting in a desk, it probably helped me a little bit more than walking around so much. So that part wasn't too bad either. I read that when you were a racing secretary, when entries would be taken each day, you'd say, okay, all you jocks agents, out of here. How do you feel about saying that now? I I appreciate Jock's agents a lot more than I did when I was racing secretary, I'll tell you that. (laughs) You don't say. Yeah, and I think being a Jock's agent actually helps me more understand more about racing because it's a different aspect. You know, when you're training horses, you look at it a certain way. When you're in the office, you look at it a certain way. And as you're a jocks agent, you look at it as another way because you're dealing with trainers and you're dealing with a lot of, you know, the horses that you're riding. It was been educational for me, and I think I've learned a lot being a jocks agent. But you're still in the same place. I mean, you were at Santa Anita in 1998 when the Stronic Group bought the track and predictably shook up the management there, of which you were a casualty. Now, as a jockey's agent, you work in the same environment where you lost your job, which was a good job. How were you able to do that? Well, at first, it was not easy because at first, just walking by the racing office, you know, walking by where my parking space would have been inside the tunnel, that part. But once I got, after a couple of years being a jocks agent, then I just started, I mean, concentrating on, you know, making a living for my family and doing a good job and what I'm doing. So eventually it worked out. And now I'm in a place in my life that, you know, I'm, I'm happy with the way things are right now. Wow, you're better than I am because I don't think I could do that, (laughs) to work in the same place where I had been let go. Good gracious. Now, as a jocks agent, you've handled Corey Nakatani, Kent DeSormo, Pat Valenzuela, Mario Gutierrez, among others. Now, of course, you have up-and-coming rider Abel Cedillo. Obviously, nothing is as stressful as a life-and-death stint in Vietnam, but how stressful is it to be a jocks agent? Well, I think... Going in, and at least what I learned from a lot of other jocks agents, is that if you're going to get fired, it's when you're going to get fired. And um, <laughs> it, it, it's going to happen. You know, and I've had the luxury of having some really good jockeys. And unfortunately, with like Pat Valenzuela, who might be one of the best jockeys ever, you know, he had some problems. And, and I had his book four different times. So everybody that, you know, if it's not Corey Nakatani or Kent DeSormel that are very, very talented, sometimes they're not easy people to work for or with. And I've had people then like Kevin Krigger that have been really easy to work with that, you know, maybe not as talented, but have talent and, and have just that right, you know, the kind of attitude. And now I'm in a position, I have two jockeys, Martin Garcia, who's been around for a long time and, and has been established. 
and then Abel Cedillo. And Martine is a very good writer and, and very easy to work with. And Abel has just been a godsend for me because I think he's an up-and-coming writer down here in Southern California and in this country. And he's been very easy to work with, very hard worker. And he's 30 years old, so it's not like he's young that, you know, he's going to change his attitude. I think his attitude and the way his work ethic is pretty much ingrained in him now. And um, so I look for a big, big future with um, Abel. What kind of skill do you need to have to spot an up-and-coming rider like Abel Cedillo? Well, the thing that helped me with Abel is Doug O'Neill and Jonathan Wong. To have a friendship with Doug is is really, really helpful for me because Doug has ridden most any rider that I've had. And he's a very good trainer and has good horses, and, and that helps you out you know, quite a bit. But with Abel, I've been watching him run right up north the last two or three years, and this year he even broke out even more and, and was so far in front and outrode so many. And there's like J.J. Hernandez up there, who I think is a really good rider, and, and Abel was winning two races to you know his one, so that made me really look at what he was doing. And Doug's good friends with Jonathan Wong, and, and so... I had called Jonathan Wong and asked him if Abel ever thought about coming down here to please, you know, keep me in mind. And then a few days later, Abel called me. But I think it's, you know, my relationship with Doug O'Neill and then Doug's relationship with Jonathan that really helped me end up getting Abel down here. Now, if you pay attention to horse racing, you know Tom Canoost as a jockey's agent, and you might know him as a Marine Corps veteran, but... You know, the legendary writer Damon Runyon used to say that the best stories and characters were at the track, especially the track kitchen. So there you were in California, and I'm guessing the 70s, with a small businessman and horse owner named B. Wayne Hughes. What happened from there? Well, Wayne was somebody that I got to know when I was racing secretary and then when I was a jocks agent. And when I was a jocks agent, I was able to have more time in the mornings and stuff. So Wayne and Warren Studi and Henry Marino, they'd all go to breakfast every once or twice a week. And they, I was fortunate enough that they would invite me there with them. So about maybe 10 years ago, Wayne He'd always tell stories about public storage, about what people found in the storage places and stuff. And I thought it was pretty interesting. So I asked Wayne if I could write a book about public storage. And I got permission from him. And I talked to people that worked in public storage. And they gave me stories and stuff. And I wrote a page with about 37 short stories about what people found in public storage when they you know, defaulted on their payments and, and then they were auctioned off. And actually, it was before those storage wars came on TV. So I was kind of before my time on it, but I wrote the book on it, and it was, pretty, it was an interesting book, and I, I, I think people that have read it have really enjoyed it. So I, I think that was pretty cool, and I have a really good relationship with Wayne Hughes you know, for the last 25, 30 years. So if you're scoring at home, the name of the book is Behind the Orange Door, and it was co-written with, of all people, the son of legendary comedian Tim Conway, who's a known horse racing fan. How did Tim Conway's son get involved in this project? I just, I've been on Tim's 
program a couple of times. So he promoted it one time on it. And actually, I wrote another book called Headshot that was about my life, the time I was four years old until through Vietnam. And um, I actually have a website called Ducks in a Tree, which is a movie that, a screenplay that I wrote on, based on the book that hopefully I'm going to have made um, within the near future, hopefully. Well, you're certainly in the right town for that. I mean, one final question. If you hadn't joined the Marine Corps and experienced what you did, would you have wound up going into the racing business? That's a good question. You know, my father was a policeman. My brother was a policeman. And everybody in my family was in military and a lot of law enforcement and stuff. So had I not been shot and been paralyzed, I might have gone into law enforcement instead. But when, I mean, I would never change anything from the racetrack except my wife, who we've been married 45 years now. She said if she had ever known what it'd be like to marry a racetracker, she never would have. <laughs> and um, and I, I don't blame her because there's just, it's seven days a week and, you know, no vacations. And you're getting up at four o'clock in the morning every day. Yep. And then when you get home at night, you're tired and it's, yeah. So it's, it hasn't been the greatest life for her. Well, we salute you, Tom Canoose, for your service to your country and for an incredible career that had so many twists and turns. And thank you so much for a few minutes on this Veterans Day. We thank you and salute you. Well, thank you very much, Barry. I appreciate you calling and appreciate being on your show. Thank you. Our thanks to Corporals Tom Canoose and Travis Eccles and Sergeant Matt Wheeler. I very much embrace the phrase, no cheering in the press box, and we journalists should really recuse ourselves whenever a potential conflict of interest affects our objectivity. That's a rabbit hole into which we should not delve. But all that said, it really was a beautiful moment after Storm the Court won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Brittany Yurton was assigned to interview the winning trainer, who happened to be a man she knew so well. Her father, Peter Erton, whom she'd interviewed before, but not in a moment nearly as sublime as pulling off a 45-to-1 shocker in a big one, to not have Brittany there would be a crime. To both of their credit, they played the moment as straight as best they could, since Brittany Yurton has always been a pro. But if you watched that moment, you wanted to embrace them both, a parent and child reaping what they sow. You can get us on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, or your podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab at ESPN.com. And we want to make sure that you vote for us in the Fan Choice Awards at America's Best Racing. It's happening right now, and yes, Best Racing Podcast is one of the categories. So you know what to do, ITG Army. If you like this show, vote for us right now in the Fan Choice Awards at AmericasBestRacing.net. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's in the gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.